We now would love for the kiddos to stay in here with us for the rest of the service, but we also offer Children's Church if uh, they would like to head that way. Hi, Deacon. See you, buddy. Only a couple of them headed that way. All right. A lot of kids are staying home today. For those of us that are in here, we are going to be in Ephesians. Believe it or not, we've been in Ephesians for a lot of weeks now, a couple of months, uh, shall we say, and we've walked through the book. It's a glorious book. It's about the riches of Christ that are given to us. And it's about how, through those riches being given to us, we become His church. So Paul's going to talk about what is the church, how does the church be the church, what, why did God give us the church, and all these other questions. Today we're going to focus in on chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Now, the end of our passage today is when we get to a neat application uh, where we get to see the fact that uh, Jesus dying and rising again is a way for us to live. But we're going to get to that in a moment. And I just wanted to remind us briefly before we read the passage that today is Palm Sunday. I don't know if you keep up at all with the liturgical calendar, but that means next week is Easter. Hey, all right. Uh, so you guys have seen the candy at the stores on the front shelves. Uh, but Palm Sunday... The reason the church celebrated Palm Sunday was because it was the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And it led up to his week. It's called the Passion Week. And as Doug mentioned earlier, much of the New Testament is focused on that one week in the life of Christ. Because it was so important for us and for him and for his mission. Um, and so today is just, just as, as a thought as we enter into Easter season to carry with yourself this week is that Jesus is the victor and that's where the palm branches come in and why they were thrown down on the ground. He was, he was entering victoriously into his, his city, that is Jerusalem, where he'd be crucified. But remember, he entered on a donkey. And when any king in that time would enter into a city where he had become victorious, it would be on a horse, a war horse. But Jesus instead comes in on a donkey, expressing the fact that he comes in peace and that he is going to lay down his life for those that he loves. So let's remember that as we enter into the Easter season. And again, um, as we'll conclude with some of those thoughts today from our sermon. But first, let's start with verse 17 of of Ephesians 4. Now this, this is Paul speaking, the Apostle Paul. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind's and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. A beautiful passage, and is the way Paul is going to introduce 
all of his ethical teachings to the church about how we should live. There's going to be things for roommates, husbands and wives. There's going to be things for those that are, that are suffering with different ailments. There's going to be all kinds of practical applications and ethical teachings, but it all starts right here. That's chapter 5 and chapter 6, but it all starts right here. And this is a glorious picture of how human beings actually make a change in their life. Because I don't know about you, but I don't always act like the most ethical person in the world. And Paul knows this about human beings, and he's going to say, there is a way for you to live with a changed life. You actually can put off the old self and put on the new self that is in Christ. And so let's talk about that today. Let's talk about how to do that, what it looks like, and what are some of the applications uh, that Paul is going to bring up for all of our lives. Now, let me begin with this, because Paul does. The one thing that is not up for debate for any of us is that there's something wrong with the world. Right, Calvin? There's something wrong with this world. You know it even when you're a little kid, right? I did, even when I was young. You know, it's difficult for me, even at this point, to open up my news app on my phone because I just don't want to know some days. I just want to stick my head in the sand and pretend like people are not killing one another and there's not some horrible accident that's occurred somewhere in the world. It's just depressing at times. Something is wrong. You know, and then I talk with a friend like I did this past week and they tell me that their brother um, and sister-in-law who have a five-year-old, just found out this week that he has an inoperable brain tumor and has about 12 to 14 months to live. Um, you know, it's, it's those type of, that type of news that it's just hard to keep coming at you at a consistent basis. But I, I like the answer to this question, what is wrong with the world? I like the answer that a guy named G.K. Chesterton gave. I've talked about this before. He's one of my favorite authors. But there was a contest in the, in the London Times uh, right at the turn of the 20th century. And they said to all the major authors and thinkers of the day, we want you to answer in essay form this question. What's wrong with the world? Again, it was a given, just like I did this morning, that there is something wrong with the world. But they were saying, what? What's wrong with the world? And they had big, huge essays from these great authors and thinkers, you know, talking about the political systems of the day and how those that are in power, and there's injustice and money and corruption and blah, 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 blah. And G.K. Chesterton sends in his essay and it has two words on it. Total. You know what those two words are? Or were? I am. That's what's wrong with the world. I am. I mean, another way to express that is to say human beings, but he was acknowledging that it started with him. That if there was going to be any sort of change in the world around us, if there was going to be any sort of hope, any sort of uh, joy and peace and these things that Jesus called to the earth, it's going to start with me. And that's precisely what Paul is doing in our passage this morning. He's saying, all of my teachings, all these glorious things God has given, it starts with us and it starts with the change that God is is working within us. It's so amazing. So let's talk for a minute about what Paul says. How does a person change? 
How do we make the world a better place? By starting with our interior world and seeing ourselves go from the old self to the new self. Well, the first thing, he he basically says, there are two ways that that happens. He says, don't do something and then do something. Right? That's how the passage says. He says, don't live like the Gentiles and then do live like one who is renewed in Christ. So we're going to just explore those two things this morning. And, you know, I would honestly rephrase it slightly differently. Instead of, to bring it up to context for us, instead of saying, don't live like the Gentiles and the futility of their thinking, that's how he begins the passage, I would say, don't live like the Americans. Update. (laughs) In the futility of their thinking. He's like, you're going to be a little bit different than the culture and the world around you. Here's the ways. He says, these things, this futility that he's talking about for the Gentiles, I'm going to express for Americans, it begins in a process. It doesn't just happen overnight. There's, yes, there's futility of their minds, but he says the futility of their minds is because of the darkening of their understanding. The darkening of their understanding is because they're alienated from the life of God. They're alienated from the life of God because there's a deep ignorance within them. And there's a deep deep ignorance within them because there's a hardness of heart. It is a, it's this like rabbit hole that a person goes down. And so it begins, again, we're going to work our way down towards the bottom of the rabbit hole, but let's start at the top. He says, the futility of their minds. I have two favorite people who talk about futility of life. The first is in the Bible. His name's Kohelet. Anybody heard of him? He wrote this thing called Ecclesiastes. Um, and it's also known as Solomon. That's, many people think it's Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes. But let's just listen to this author. It's in the Bible. He says some things that are rather depressing about human life and existence. He says, um, and I'm going to read from the start of chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He's talking to himself. And behold, This also was vanity, (laughs) meaningless. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on it um, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female servants and had servants who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Okay, think about that for a minute. This is what we call (laughs) true (laughs) pleasure seeking. I kept nothing. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
And then he goes on. I'm, I won't read the whole passage to you. He talks about education. I'm going to go get wisdom and learning. I'm going to go to the best universities. I'm going to get a PhD. I'm going to get multiple PhDs. And then he ends that chapter with what? Vanity. It's all vanity. And then he's like, I'm going to have power. I'm going to have, you know, he lists through these different things. He talks about sensuality. Um, he's going to have every, and he mentioned in there, every pleasure, food, drink. Then he talks about how he's going to rule and he's going to have all these kingdoms underneath him. And then he keeps coming back. Meaningless. It is just absolute vanity. He cannot find purpose and meaning for his life. And as you might imagine, because Paul's getting to the same point, there is some bright notes in there. Because towards the end of the book, he says, you know what? With God, though, things are different. How are they different? Well, let's keep listening to the sermon. There's another guy, and you guys have obviously heard me quote this guy before, and I'm going to do it again because I love him, and so here he comes again. His name's Blaise Pascal, philosopher, mid-16th century, and um, he basically says very similar things to Kohelet, the author of Ecclesiastes. He says, uh, here he's talking about restlessness. He says, if a soldier or a laborer complain of the hardship of his lot, Set him to do nothing. (laughs) He'll soon see the vanity of even that. Okay, here's another one. This is from a, a little section he calls weariness. Nothing is so insufferable to man as to be completely at rest. Without passions, without business, without diversion, without study. He then feels his nothingness, his forlornness, his insufficiency, his dependence, his weakness, his emptiness, there will immediately arise from the death of his heart weariness, gloom, sadness, fretfulness, vexation, despair. That's exciting stuff. His point is, we all complain about how busy we are, but if we all were forced to stop our busyness, you're going to be in the same amount of despair that you are now. <laughs> you cannot escape it. This vanity chases us around throughout our entire lives. You feel it in your bones. It's something that is a part of the human experience. One last one from Blaze. I just can't help myself. He says this, Men are entrusted from infancy with the care of their honor, their property, their friends, and even with the property and the honor of their friends. They are overwhelmed with business, with the study of languages, and with physical exercise. And they are made to understand they cannot be happy unless their health, their honor, their fortune, and that of their friends be in good condition, and that a single thing wanting will make them unhappy. Thus they are given cares and business which make them bustle about from break of day. It is, you will exclaim, a strange way to make them happy. What more could be done to make them miserable? Indeed, what could be done? We should only have to relieve them from all these cares, for then they would see themselves, they would reflect on who they are, what they are, whence they came, whither they go, and thus we cannot employ and divert them too much. And this is why, after having given them so much business, we advise them, even if they have time for relaxation, to employ it in amusement, in play, and to be always fully occupied. How hollow and full of ribaldry is the heart of man. So these guys are getting at, Kohelet and Blaise Pascal, are getting at the fact that you are not alone when you feel life is vanity. You're not alone. Americans feel it. I mean, why do you think Steve Jobs invented the iPhone? 
It was to combat this problem. We need more distractions, not less in our life. Now, we can get into the ethics of that later on in our study, but not today. So that's the first thing that Paul mentions. He says, do not be like the Gentiles, the Americans, in the futility of their thinking. But he says, why is there this futility? Why this meaninglessness? He says it's because they've been darkened in their understanding. One of the reasons I believe we love zombie books, zombie movies, and zombie TV shows is because they're an excellent reflection of what we feel often as Americans living in modern society. Zombies. Stumbling around, not quite knowing what we should do or where we should go. That is the experience of your neighbors. Ask them. I did this week. I'm in the coffee shop. I've set up in the back of Millie, which is one of my favorites. It's right there on Ridge McIntyre. And there's a table you can kind of stand up at near the back. And there was people working at the table next to me and the table next to them. Struck up conversation. was like, hey, y'all, sorry to bother you and your business, but I need help with my sermon this Sunday. I was like, what? Here's a question for you. What's the meaning of life? I wanted to get a feel for what the average American is thinking about this, this darkening of understanding. Here's a direct quote from some of them. It scares the expletive out of me to think about it. You guys ever been trapped in a cave with no light? Happened to me one time. Zero light. And there's, there's not even, you can't even see like an entrance light. The level of fear is palpable. It is, it is, I mean, it is exhilarating on one hand, but you literally cannot think and you tend to stumble around and a lot of people get hurt if a light goes out when they're in a cave. There's, There's a sense in which darkness makes us stumble. Another quote. There's no way someone could figure that out, what the meaning of life is. No one can explain infinite. These are all quotes. Uh, We are not capable of figuring it out. We cherish the details of life, and we can only comprehend little pieces, and so we stick with that. Here's here's the other uh, quote. It would freak you out if you backed up that far and tried to think about what the true meaning of life is. In other words, just stay dark. Just stay in the darkness. Just... Quit trying to figure out if there's a light at the end of the tunnel and just remain where you are. And then there were some Christians I found at a couple tables over in the coffee shop, modern American Christians. And interestingly, they did not give me the biblical answer, (laughs) which is okay. No offense, no problem. Um, But they said, one of them said, relationships and love give meaning to life. Hey, there you go. Okay, cool. That's pretty good direction. And then the other person said, we create our own meaning. We each have a way to make our lives meaningful, and everyone was in agreement with it. Christians and non-Christians all were in agreement with that statement. We all create our own meaning. It does not come from outside of us. It's something we just make up. Y'all, do you understand? That is, our entire society truly thinks that. I don't know if you've talked with your neighbors recently about that. This is the darkening of the mind that Paul is talking about. And it's with us today. It wasn't just the Gentiles at the time he was talking It's with us today. Okay. There's a futility that people feel in their minds. 
There's a darkness that people are afraid of. There's a deep fear that, that there is no meaning to life or that you have to make it up. Then why does that occur? Paul is backing up. He's going deeper down the rabbit hole. And he says it's because people are alienated from the life of God. So the darkness comes in once someone begins to alienate themselves from God, does not have any understanding of Scripture, does not have any relationship with God. There's no connection with something greater than themselves. Of course you have to make up your own meaning. Doesn't it make sense? If you're alienated from the life of God, there isn't something which is going to direct you or guide you. It's going to be confusion uh, in many ways. And life with God has always been talked about, or zoe, that's the biblical word for eternal life. Zoe is always described in the scripture in relational terms. It's always a connection to the God of the universe. And that is where meaning begins to come in and where we find a way to actually navigate the life that is in front of us. It's connection, and it's a conscious movement to remember. That's going to come back up in our passage. A conscious movement to remember. Okay, futility of the mind, darkening of understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why are people alienated from the life of God? Paul says, because of a deep ignorance. You know, he also explains the same ignorance, this lack of knowledge. He explains it in the beginning of Romans. Chapter 1 of Romans, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there's an active and there is a willful ignorance in people in suppressing the truth of God. They don't want to know. It's not just, I'm stumbling around in the dark, the light got turned off in the cave, I just don't know what the meaning of life is. There is a willful, turn that light off. (laughs) Why? Because the light exposes The light brings us to a place of seeing what and who we actually are. And what Paul expresses here, the reason this this light is so blinding and, and the reason there is an ignorance that is willful is because there is a hardness of heart and that's where he ends this this rabbit hole. He says the bottom level point about why people feel that life is meaningless or they're confused or they're in darkness is because of this thing called hardness of heart. And just think of it this way. Marble slab. I imagine these are marble. Is that? Or I'm sorry. Think about something like this. This is a good way to think about hardness of heart, right? If you put anything on this counter, what happens to it? Anything, any substance, food, liquid. Yeah, it just runs off. Or you could just flick it off, right? It cannot penetrate. And that's the point that Paul's, that God is trying to get across in the scriptures, is that it, a heart that has been hardened cannot be penetrated. Jesus himself talked about this. He said there are different types of soil on this earth, right? There are those that it's very fertile, very moist, It's open to a seed gets dropped in there and the seed immediately slips down into it and produces an incredible harvest, a crop, 30, 60 times what was produced originally. But he said there's also rocks and there's hardness. And that seed goes, and the seed is the word of God when Jesus is speaking. That seed comes down, just like that counter right there and just bounces right off. Because there is a closedness. There is a, 
a willful unwillingness to let anything sink in. And that's precisely what Jesus talked about when he was on the earth. He said, if you really want change, people, if you really want the life of God, Zoe, in you, you've got to be fertile soil. There has got to be an openness to the word of God. You've got to come like we do on a Sunday morning, and you have to open your hands, and you have to hold everything very lightly and say, Lord, teach me. Lord, I receive. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have my life together. There's got to be this sense in which we just take what God is giving to us. But that's hard. Because at the center of our being, and the Bible calls it heart, hardness of heart, that just was their term, the Hebrew term for the center of your being. It included your mind. It included your emotions. But it was just basically your control room. And all of us like to be at the helm in our control room determining how our life will go, what we will do, who we will be with, what we will say. And he's saying, give it over to me. That's softness of heart. Let my word come in and guide you and bring you to a place of life and righteousness. I will be a great yoke. That's what Jesus, how he put it. Put my yoke upon you. Let me into the control center. I'm telling you, I'm going to take your life into some great directions. I'm going to do some awesome things. And your love is going to start to explode out from that center core because I am in the control room. So, okay, that's what Paul says don't do. (laughs) Paul says do not be like the Americans in the futility of their thinking because the understanding has been darkened because... I have to remember all these. Because they've been alienated from God. They have a deep ignorance, a willful ignorance within them because there's a hardness of heart refusing to receive the truth of God's word. Don't do that. (laughs) But Paul gives some positive stuff too. He says there is another thing you do need to do. And we got it right here. Okay, so we've gone through all this. Dark in their understanding. Yeah, and then we're down to verse 20. Buddha. But that is not the way you learned Christ. It's an incredibly unusual phrase in the Greek. No Greek philosopher or thinker of that time would say that you learn a person. That's crazy talk. You would say you learn a virtue, you put on a virtue. You learn a philosophy. You learn a system of thinking, etc., etc. Not Paul. Paul says, you got to be in the school of Christ. Enroll now and stay in school, kids. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you, the positive thing you need to do, if you're actively walking away from the futility of the mind of the people that you know around you. Your goal, the positive goal for you, is to remain in the school of Christ. To learn from Christ, not just the teachings of Christ, but also be learning Christ so well relationally that you begin to live like Him and that you receive from Him. It's what we do every Sunday when we're here at Christ Central. We're receiving from Jesus Christ. We're learning from Jesus Christ. Okay. So that's part of it. Be in the school of Christ. Learn from him. Learn about him. Be in relationship with him so that his identity actually begins to be taken into you. Think about how that works for a minute. You have decided, or you did decide at some point in your life, 
what's going to give you worth and value? Right? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your great looks. I know many of you are in that camp in this, in this room. Maybe it's your achievements in school. Maybe it's your achievements in your career. Whatever it might be. Maybe it's your family, your kids. <coughs> you chose something to say, this is where I'm going to find value and worth. Well, the reason we can't do that in the school of Christ is because it leads to the same vanity that Paul talked about at the very beginning of our passage. Guess what? Anything you choose like that to be your identity can always be taken from you. And probably at some point will be taken from you. All of your loved ones are going to die. Shh, kids, I didn't say that out loud. Your career is going to end. You're not going to get the new job. You aren't... Everything, and this is what Ecclesiastes is saying. Ecclesiastes, the beginning of Ecclesiastes, he says, I got all this stuff. I got houses, I got mansions, I got buildings. I am incredible. He says, but the thing that just irks me beyond belief is that I have to give it to someone else when I die. It kills him because he knows it's pointless. All of his gathering is pointless. He needs an identity outside of himself. School of Christ. You get the identity of Christ, and it says at the end of Romans, what? it can absolutely never be removed from you. There's, this is the one thing. The love of Christ, the identity we have in Him, is the one thing you can get in life that can never be removed for all of eternity. Finally, we have meaning. We have something that's going to last beyond our own death. And so you see, see how Paul's entering into, there, it, life is not vanity. Life in Christ is something altogether different. This is life with God. Okay. I I know, okay. Two more quick little points. The spirit of our mind gets renewed. You see it right here. It says, I want you to put off your old self, and I'm going to mention that in a minute, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And I want you to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And it's very important that he says spirit here. Because this is one of Paul's major theological points in the scriptures. You see it all throughout the book of Romans. And it's this juxtaposition between the life in the flesh, or his Greek term sarx, and life in the spirit. He says, no longer walk in the works of the flesh, walk in the works of the spirit. And he's constantly going back and forth between these two things. Don't follow the flesh, follow the spirit. The definition for sarx is life in God-forgetfulness. That's what it is. Now, of course, it leads to sensuality. It leads to debauchery. It leads to all these very problematic things like relationships blowing up and falling apart. But ultimately, it is God-forgetfulness. It is, I am not going to acknowledge that God has a say on my life and I'm going to live the way I want to live. That's sarks. That's the flesh. Then, the life of the Spirit, and it's what he's talking about here. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That is called God-remembering. God remembering. In the beginning of Genesis, it says God created human beings. Male and female, he created them. The word in the Hebrew for male is the remembering one. We are created to remember. It's why we have brains. We are created to remember God, to bring him to absolutely every arena of our life and to put him in the very control room, the center of who we are. And he's saying this is meaning. This is life. This is zoe. This is what you're going after. This is putting on the new self. You have to be renewed in your mind. 
The head's a big deal for Scripture. The heart is a big deal, but so is the mind. It, it, we Christians should be schooling ourselves constantly with the Bible and with Jesus. It's why we have Sunday school classes. It's why we have preaching and teaching. This is super duper important. I love the fact that you guys are employed. I'm pointing out, sorry. I'm kind of putting you on the spot. Ethan and Katie here. They work for this thing called the Center for Christian Study. Unbelievably important. We've got to keep people studying the Word of God, studying Jesus Christ, so they know how to apply it. it is, Paul's like, this is how you put on the new self. This is what you got to do. Okay, so that's one thing. We get renewed in the spirit of mind because the Spirit is working in us, and one of the major roles of the Spirit working within us is reminding us of the very words of Jesus Christ and reminding us who Jesus Christ is and who we are in Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. And we constantly are remembering that. It's something you can actually live out in your real life. You can be like, you know what? I feel like a mess today. I feel like I'm probably going to fail at work today. I feel like people don't like me. And the Spirit comes along and says, oh my goodness, you are loved in Christ. You are, you are righteous. You, are, you can't get better than you already are right now. My goodness, do we need that on a regular basis. Like minute by minute throughout our day to be reminded of who we are in Jesus Christ. That's just one small... Okay, I end with this. I've got more, but... Whew, man, this one got a little longer than I thought. Paul also has another theology built around this concept of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And often when he talks about it in other of the books, the letters he wrote to the churches, he ties it in with baptism. That's why it fits perfectly with Holy Week. So we could end here. He's saying, death, rebirth. That is what it is. It's baptism. You, you cannot live the victorious Christian life. A lot of places and teachers and churches are going to talk about, you know, hey, live the awesome victorious Christian life and it's going to be great and oh, let's, let's crank the music up, which we should. But first, die. <laughs> die a lot. Die off, die daily. Die moment by moment to yourself. <laughs> That's the extremely painful part. You die to your desires. You die to your wants. You die to your needs. You die to what you thought your dreams were. You die, and just you say, God, come into the control room. Holy, you know, Holy Spirit, work on my mind. Word, come in and do your thing upon me, and I'm dying to my old self. That is always the pattern of Christian growth. Death first and then rebirth as Christ works within us. It's the pattern we're going to see throughout this week. You're going to see it reflected. Jesus dies on the cross for us, and then Jesus is raised for us. And the most important piece of that, and I'm going to emphasize this on Easter, is that he did it for us. That we don't do it first. Or we don't, he, didn't, he didn't show us an example of what it's like to live the Christian life, putting off the old self, putting on the new self. He already did it for us. It's already bought. That's where that new identity comes from. And so it's not just about our effort. It's about the fact that 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 truth is working its way within us. 
The death and life of Christ is a part of us because we are a part of Him. And so it is through His Spirit enabling us to do these things that we ever have any power to die to ourself and to live to Christ. And when you've experienced it, some of you might have experienced this, this Spirit working within you in this way, and right now it seems, oh, pastor, up there talking about dying to self. Oh, he just doesn't get off of that. I know I shouldn't be selfish, but oh, I love that thing or that person or that vice or whatever it is. I get it. I understand. It feels hard, but when you're God-remembering and when you've opened up some space in your life through the spiritual disciplines... I don't know if you know this, but the spiritual disciplines aren't this like set of like harsh things you should do because you need to be a better person. No. The spiritual disciplines are a way to open up some remembrance of God. That's it. That's why they say things like meditate, silence, take some time to just reflect, open the scriptures, pray a little bit. All you're doing is you're just saying, I'm going to open up my life a little bit to God. And what you'll find is, because our only role is to receive from God himself, is that when you open up that remembrance of him, you find that it isn't so hard after all. That with the life of God coursing within you, this is actually something that he can, in the control room, begin to work out in the real day-to-day parts of our life. So my encouragement to you, church, as we conclude here, is open up a little space. It's hard for me to. Y'all, don't, don't think I'm like some great guru at this. I go, I go multiple days where I'm like, oh yeah, oh gosh, I should have read my Bible. I am no example to follow. But this passage is teaching me, and I hope it's teaching all of us, that that is, a, that is something, a gift God has given us that we can open up a remembrance of him and let the Spirit pour into us his energy so that we can put off the old self and put on the new. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Thank you for your Apostle Paul. Thank you for writing through him. Thank you for teaching us that real, real change is possible, that we can actually open up space for you, God that we can be enrolled in the school of Christ and that we can learn more and more about you, Lord, and be transformed. by, As Paul said, we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But we all recognize, and I will be the first to say it, we can only do this through your power, God. So I pray that your spiritual power would pour down upon us this morning. Pour down upon me, Lord, so that we can begin this process. Spirit, bring God into remembrance throughout our day and throughout our week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, y'all, so much of what we do, and hopefully you can see this, kind of the big picture um, beginning to open up, the envelope beginning to open up a little bit. So much of what we do as a church in this formative way on Sunday morning is simply to remember. 
This is what Jesus said. He said, remember me by doing this on a regular basis. And so, and again, what we do when we do confession and assurance is remember God by 